Hello and welcome to Be The Light podcast. I'm your host, Melanie Phillips, and I'm here with Dr. Claudia Welch today. Dr. Claudia Welch is the author of Balance Your Hormones, Balance Your Life, Achieving Optimal Health and Wellness Through Ayurveda, Chinese Medicine, and Western Science. And also she's authored a book entitled The Four Qualities of Effective Physicians, Practical Ayurvedic Wisdom for Modern Physicians. Claudia is a doctor of oriental medicine, an Ayurvedic practitioner, and she's an international speaker. Dr. Welch explores how ideas in Eastern medicine apply to women's health and today's reality in general. Uh, And I personally have known Claudia for some time through Ayurveda uh, and through the Ayurvedic community, and she was a mentor of mine uh, previously as well. And I always love conversations with Claudia because she's so filled with not just uh, knowledge, but wisdom, her experience through her life and also through her practicing of oriental medicine and Ayurvedic medicine is just so deep and rich. So thank you, Claudia, so much for joining us here today. Oh, it's just my pleasure, Melanie, really, truly. Well, fantastic. I would love to know, I don't know if I know this story, in fact, and I'm sure our listeners are also curious about how you came interested in both Chinese medicine and Ayurveda, and did one come before the other, or how did that come to play out in your life? Oh, oh, this is fun. This is that's fun. I'm happy to talk about that. But you know, I just want to mention, can, can I jump into something totally different? First? Yeah, please. <laughs> Um, I was thinking, you know, uh, for all, all of the listeners, uh, Melanie and I didn't really have an agenda for, t- for today, a specific agenda on, on what to do. And, and I hadn't landed on anything. And we did a little meditation just before starting in this, um, the, the, this, this concept that I've been just kind of meditating on for a while the last a week or so on light came came to mind and then melanie introduced the show called be the light which if i had remember i didn't remember that that's what this is called so can we talk about light first please yeah it's i it's something i'm really uh motivated by and inspired by so i'd love to hear your take on it and what has been current for you around that Great. And, and if, if we get back to the TCM Ayurveda question, I'd be very happy to do that. But just I just was s- struck by this, you know, this, this sort of word light coming in as our meditation and then you saying that. And it, so, um, well, one of the things we just had the solar eclipse. I'm not sure when you'll be listening to this listeners, but um, we just had the solar eclipse of the 21st. It's um, the 24th today as we record this. And so the the issue of light has been up for us, light and, and the eclipsing of light and the reemerging of light. And it just so happened that the day before the eclipse, I was reading this book by Norman Doidge, I, who I absolutely love. His first book was um, The Brain That Changes Itself. And the second one that I'm reading now is called The Brain's Way of Healing. And... There was, and I just happened to be reading about a chapter of uh, on light just the day before the eclipse and ruminating on this and and during the not during the eclipse itself but part of that day I was reading this as well and a couple of things I, I get very fascinated by uh, unusual properties and experiences associated with our sense organs and our sensory experience 
partially I'm so interested in this because the sense organs and sensory experience are so intimately connected with the channel system of the mind and how we perceive things and how we perceive ourselves because our mind is pretty intimately connected with how we perceive ourselves. So when, um, when I started thinking about light, thinking about it in a more holistic way than just what we take in through our eyes and our retinas and cones and rods, we kind of, I think, think of light as affecting us through our eyes. But, but there was, there, this chapter was talking about how light penetrates through our skin and affects our blood and our blood vessels. And, and this really is coming home to me in a different way than it ever has before about how we absorb light through our whole being. And one of the things that, the, that this chapter was talking about was a specific nurse who was working in a, in a ward, I forget how long ago, maybe a hundred years ago or so, was working in a ward with jaundiced babies. And about 50% of babies, I understand, are born with a, a, a little jaundice or, or more than a little. And they didn't know how to treat this for a long time. And this nurse found that all the babies in her charge were getting better. And the babies that weren't in her charge weren't getting better. And what she was doing differently is she was bringing the babies into this courtyard and exposing them to light. And what she would find was that the areas of their skin that were exposed to the sunlight were getting, were were losing the yellow jaundiced color. And areas that didn't have the light were retaining the jaundiced color. And she pointed this out to the physicians and nobody took her seriously until there happened to be this vial of blood from one of the jaundiced babies. And then jaundice is there because of this excess level of bilirubin in the blood, this liver enzyme. So there was this uh, um, jaundiced baby's vial of blood on a, happened to be on a, on a windowsill that was letting in natural sunlight. And when they went to test that, that vial of blood low, the bilirubin levels were normal. The sunlight had caused a reaction that, um, that transformed that bilirubin, sort of digested that bilirubin. And so then they started saying, oh, well, maybe, maybe this nurse has, maybe there's something here. And so this is, then they, that's when they started putting the babies out and realizing that that was the cure. And so since then, that's been standard. But what's speaking to me very much about this is, is, is the understanding, the suspicion, I guess, that we don't know yet all the ways that we receive light. We probably don't know all, yet all the ways we are light either. But, we, but the way we receive light, we know we receive light indirectly through chlorophyll that is getting it from, you know, that's getting energy from the sun and we're receiving it from that. We, so everything we eat, whether it's plants or animals that are fed by plants is all from the sun. But also we, we get that it's coming in our mouth. We get that it's coming in our eyes, but really that we're, we're sponges for it. Our skin is sponges for it. And they found um, that post-surgery, if, if a patient is exposed to natural sunlight, their pain levels will be 
uh, more decreased than people who are in unnatural sunlight. And, you know, it's unfortunate we go into a hospital these days and there's so much unnatural light. We're getting kind of away from that. But this, if, and we're also scared of the sun. We're scared of, of skin cancer and we're scared of the light in a certain sense. We cover up. But um, it's this, but there's something that we get in, through exposure to light. Oh, of course, vitamin D is processed not through the mouth, not through the eyes, but through the skin. We receive light through the skin. That's part of how we're, we're light. And so I, I want to let you get in a word in edgewise. <laughs> there are places we can go from here, but that it's just been on my mind. And so be, being the light, <laughs> even on these very physical levels of how our senses take in light through food and through the visual experience and through the sense the the skin is just phenomenal. We really are made of light and light affects us. Yeah, yeah, I, I love, love that. that. And it's like all I, I'm, my mind just taken back to sort of the ancient yogis who are looking through the lens of prana and how uh, things are coming in through all of the five senses, as we know in Ayurveda, right? That we're this is how we're either going in or out of balance through our five senses and, and what we're taking in or not taking in. And then my mind went to uh, mantra as sound vibration but that also is a form of light vibration uh, and that also being a form of light so the the power of word the power of mantra the power of chanting and music also a form uh, of light yeah and well and well and all and even if we look at that as a form of sound and not light that you know sound and light are quite connected even spiritually and philosophically in traditions in india um, paths of sound and light where the light of God and the sound of God are, are together. But all, all of our sensory impressions, whether they're from mantra or from sunlight or from um, seeing a car crash, the good and the, and, and the quote unquote bad, all of these things are making up who we think we are. I mean, how do we know what we know from a certain perspective, how we know what we know adds up to what we experience through our senses, right? And so the, our, our experience of who we are, this is a really interesting thing, like, are we, right? I mean, this is a question that great thinkers and, and seers and hearers and tasters and touchers have, have, have proposed is an important question for us to be asking ourselves who who are we and who each one of us sees ourselves as is very important in terms of our health how we experience pain how we experience relationships if we if they our experience of ourselves is not it's not like our experience of ourselves is subjective and our physical body is objective and the two twain shall never meet, or, or, um, or they're very distant at all from each other. They're very intertwined together. And what's what's um, leading me down this to is is that we have sort of, I think, a master image of ourselves. This is related to the idea of ahankar in in Sankhya philosophy, right? The, the I form or what is me. 
And what is me is it's the flesh and the bones and the blood. We often identify with these things as me, but it's more than that. It's what it's also what we see in the mirror, but it's more than that. It's what other people tell us we're like, but it's more than that. It's what we sense we're like, but it's more than that. It's all of that together, all of that together. Plus what we, um, what we aspire to, it becomes part of who we are now it becomes part of how we see ourselves. So for example, if I'm aspiring to become an Ayurvedic practitioner or something, then that's how I see myself as a student going towards something. All of these things, these ideas of who I am, form this master image, let's say, of, of, of me. And that master image affects my experience going through life. And a couple of, couple of things to kind of ground this in something that makes sense, that doesn't seem so abstract, is I've read that there's a, um, they did a study where they caused, they, they, they have a bunch of people, I can't remember exactly how the study goes, something like this. There's a, a bunch of people, they cause some pain to these people's hands in some way. I forget what they did. And some people are looking at their hands in, under normal conditions. Other people are looking at their hands under a magnifying glass so that their hands look much bigger than, than they look without the magnifying glass. And some participants are looking at their hands through a glass that makes their hands look smaller than they are otherwise. Follow? Yes. So what they found was that the, that the people who were looking at their hands through the microscope and their hands looked really big, they experienced much more subjective levels of pain. They reported much more pain than people without the microscopes on, on their hands, without the magnifying, sorry, the magnifying glass under their hands. Uh, over their hands. And so people who were looking, just looking at their normal hands experienced less pain. The people who, ex who were looking at their hands through, through a, a glass that made their hands look smaller experienced the least amount of pain. And not only that, not only was there this subjective report of, of less pain when the, when the, um, when, when the participants hands were measured to see how the, fingers were swelling and from inflammation from the pain the inflammation was was much more pronounced in the people who saw their hands as bigger than than they were otherwise you follow yeah so how we see ourselves affects how we feel pain how we feel pleasure how, and 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 how we feel pain and pleasure and see ourselves is affecting the very physiology and biology such that follows our expectation to see. So if we see something bigger than it is, we're going to think it's bigger than it is and it's going to be magnified and we're going to have more inflammation and more pain. And so this kind of working with our senses to ref refine them in very subtle ways, I think help, can help shift our, our master image of ourselves in ways that are more conscious and, and that are more comfortable, more conscious and more comfortable, possibly 
more uncomfortable in a certain emotional way as we step into something that's unfamiliar and become something different or unbecome something we've already become because we're cha because change is uncomfortable but ultimately that if we work with this in a conscious way we we can refine our experience in a in a in a sweet in, so that our experience of life and ourselves and our relationships are, are sweeter. And mm. I have some ideas about that, but I, again, want to let you get a word in. Well, I, no, I really love, I really love what you're speaking of. And so I have two questions. One is, do you believe that, um, cause I, I'm seeing through that, through the eyes of dis-ease and healing that that master image of ourself is going to be um, paramount in either our, you know, which direction that goes and whether we're moving up the staircase of good health or down the staircase to, to dis-ease. Um, how do you see that, the ahankar and the master image of ourselves affecting our health? Well, I think it's such a beautiful question. And I think there's probably a lot of answers to that. And there's a lot of ways that our shifting experience of who we are affects our health um there's there's a couple that that come to mind i think and i'm you, you and i have have um been familiar with each other for a long time and there's this story that i've probably told a hundred times and i hate to bombard people with this story but it's so important in this relation in relation to this conversation so i i find myself having to tell this story. please please do but it's a, it I, i'll warn you that it has an anticlimactic ending <laughs> um and when i first when my guru told me told this story when i first heard him tell this story it i don't think i really heard it it wasn't until much later when i read it that it just I was like, or, or maybe later just remembering it in a certain context that it really, now, now it's one of my most treasured stories. I think it's so important. So, but anticlimactic. So it goes like this. The guru and the disciple are walking down the road and the disciple says, Guruji, give me some words to live by. Give me some advice. And the Guruji says, okay, don't become anything. And the disciple thinks, huh, maybe I should get myself a different guru because I don't see how that means anything. But he keeps his observations to himself and they keep walking. And then the guruji says, you know, I'm rather tired. I think I'm going to lay down here, take a little nap. You go do whatever it is that you do. And so the disciple wanders off into the woods and he sees this beautiful velvet cloth laid out with rose petals on it and a goblet of wine next to it and a nice pillow and he thinks god is so happy with me for being a sadhu this is so beautiful look he made me this beautiful place to lay down and sleep because he's so pleased with who who i am and so he lies down he falls asleep and of course he gets woken 15 minutes later with a lathi a big stick from the guard hitting him in the in the ribs and he wakes with a start and he says, what, what, what's wrong? And the guard says, you fool, what are you doing here? This is, and the guy says, I, I'm, I'm taking a nap. And he says, well, couldn't, the guard says, couldn't you see that this was laid out for somebody? This is for the king who's gone hunting and he's going to be back any moment. And now you've ruined it. You've, you've mussed up the, the, 
the velvet and you've squished all the rose petals. This is so annoying. Now we have to start all again. <laughs> and what on earth made you think you could do this? And the, and, and the sadhu said, the, the disciple said, well, you know, I, I, I'm a sadhu. And I thought, and then at, that, at that, the guard went nuts. And he said, well, you're a sadhu? Well, then you have zero business um, living in the lap, lap of luxury like this. Of course, you should know this isn't for you. It's for somebody else. And he gets a, a very sound beating. And the disciple goes back to... His guru wakes his guru up and is like, and he's bleeding. And the guru wakes up and he's like, oh, you idiot. What did you do? <laughs> <laughs> and the disciple says, it wasn't my fault. Why do you think it's immediately my fault? And he told them the story. And, you know, I laid down and I saw this beautiful thing. And I laid down and the, and the guard hit me. And he woke up and he said, how did you, why did you, why were you doing this? And I said, well, because I'm a sadhu. And the guru interrupted him and he said, well, when did you become a sadhu? <laughs> And that's the end of the story. Hmm. And I told you it was anticlimactic. No. <laughs> but at some point, he decided he'd become a sadhu. And as soon as he decided he became something, then there were certain, um, a certain, then he had certain expectations of how the, he would relate to the world and how the world would relate to him, how God would relate to him, how, um, how affairs in the universe would manage themselves around him, because all of a sudden he's a sadhu, so now he deserves this or that kind of treatment and this or that kind of behavior. And so his, his master image of himself was a sadhu, and that had certain connotations for him and for his health and well-being, as we see, because he ended up getting beaten. Yes. So to a degree, when we become something in this master image of ourselves, we're always protecting it. We're, we're, or wanting to add to it or afraid we're going to lose it or it's going to get messed up in some way, or we need reinforcement from others that yes, yes, that's who you are. That's who you've become. We respect that and admire that about you. And you are so wonderful. And we, we want that kind of praise and reinforcement for our, our map. And this, this becomes where we live and it becomes smallating. It becomes smallifying. It smallifies us into this little box of who we are. And going outside of that is our identity becomes fixed and it's precarious because it's, changeable it's changeable from the outside people can stop reinforcing it we can we can we will have decided for example oh i know what i've become i've become an ayurvedic teacher and then all of a sudden nobody likes the way you teach ayurveda anymore <laughs> you know, right right or 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 you can't teach anymore you lose your voice box or whatever it is right whatever it is all of a sudden then who you your master image doesn't work anymore. That's a tremendous crisis of identification. That's a, that, that, that puts us in a precarious place indeed in terms of our mental health. And also perhaps in, in many situations, I would say for sure in terms of our physical health, because it's very difficult to, to, um, to separate these two. And one very clear way that we see this a lot is we see, we tend to, there's a certain kind of profile 
often of men, but, but very often of women too, where it's like, it's all good. I'm going to drink beer and I'm going to eat lots of burgers and it's all good. And I'm the person that you want to be around if you want to have fun. And, and this is my mental construct of who, who I am. And because that's the case, I might drink more than is healthy, helpful for me. I might um, eat more processed foods, eat more meat, eat more heavy foods. And, and it's all good, quote unquote. It's all good until you get a heart attack or, or, or cancer, or some other kind of um, lifestyle diet associated um, disorder. So very much who we think we are, who, who we're constructing ends up affecting how we see things, how we act, what we eat, how we interact, and all of these things, of course, affect health either either directly or indirectly as thought creates biology. Yeah, and and so I've had a, a lot of personal experience of what you're speaking of and sort of constructing and deconstructing of of identity and also went through a, a near 10-year autoimmune condition, which I associate back to a like an unstable ahankar uh, because I was so um, inundated and wrapped up in a, in a lineage and in a tradition that I perceived that I had to become um, more than what I was. So the, the underlying message was I'm not enough, in fact. And, and when I really have you know done the investigative work back to that, I'm like, wow, that had a huge part to play in my autoimmune condition, I believe. Um, so my question for you is how do we cultivate a healthy ahankar, that healthy eye former, that healthy sense of I-ness so that we can thrive on a cellular level, on a spiritual level, on a psychological level? How do we relate? Because what I'm hearing from the story is like the attachment to our image of ourself can be detrimental, but is there also a way that we can generate even better health and even better well-being through the ahankar? Well, I think, I think it's possible. Um, a couple of things come to mind. One, one is um, when you're talking about not enough, when you talk about in your, in your experience, in your history, you used the term not enough. And when, we're, when we think we're not enough, when that brain image of ourselves is not enough, we keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And, um, you know, anyone f familiar with the, um, the Balance Your Hormones book uh, that I wrote and my work knows that women, as women we tend to push and there's consequences from that that are, that are unhealthy. Um, but it's, it's very interesting. How do we not... How do we not push? How do we, because it's just, it's like, it's like we can't stop pushing. It's never enough. You know, it, I'm never enough. It's never enough. There's never enough power, money, romance, uh, affection. There's never enough. So, so how do we, how do we live in it's enough? Because it's not enough is a stressful place to live and that has consequences. And we could talk about that forever. But I expect that most of the listeners here are on the same page when we say there's consequences to feeling constant stress, right? Mm -hmm. There's consequences to that, serious, significant, huge consequences to that. And so how, how is it enough? And one of, the, one of the things, let's bring Ayurveda into this in another way. Ayurveda means the science of life. 
and that has always struck me sometimes more than others that it's not the science of medicine it's the science of life and to understand the science of life how do we do that when it's when we're in the mode of it's not enough we're in a rush mode we we, we got to get more because it's not enough more love more power more money more initials after our names whatever it is it's a rush mode it's not a slow mode and so in my experience to be a student of life to, to learn the science of life you have to go to life itself and to be a student of life it does not hurt to slow down to you know, to, to watch life to feel life and you know we find even when we when we want to when we want to for example create a new neural pathway in the brain one of the things they've found that is very helpful for that is for the person to slow down like if a person has trouble walking in parkinsons or something like that if they have trouble walking slow down the movement tremendously so that you are paying attention to the most tiny little slow movement and as you do that and pay because it takes that much attention to look at even something little tiny slow little microscopic movements when we are paying that kind of attention that kind of attention is what repatterns the brain and that repatterned brain is a is is a new that's repatterning our master image of ourselves it's repatterning part of who we are and so I think that one of the things we can do is to slow down because when we slow down, we are, a, we are allowed to make more subtle observations. And when we ourselves make these subtle observations, how do we know what we know? We know through what we see, what we experience in our, in our sensory world. And so when we slow down and we can make more astute refined observations of life in and out within and without ourselves then we can see what we learn to see what is more harmonious what is more healthy and we don't like stop drinking because it's bad we we might drink less because we have observed certain changes within ourselves or, or without ourselves that are that don't lead towards harmony physical emotional spiritual harmony so we stop using we throw out the rule book and we start making more and more subtle observations about what creates harmony and balance and we start we start cooperating with that so slowing down is what i would say is a useful tool to regain health i love that i feel like in working with my students and clients who you know want to learn ayurveda everyone wants to jump the gun on what's my dosha and i'm like let's i would i'm much more interested in educating people about how to like you say like how to observe for themselves and focus more on the gunas and then understanding from a deeper way of how to bring balance because um because one is more integrated with themselves instead of just getting a food list and following a food list but you know those can be helpful sometimes but again it's still externally sourced uh, information exactly exactly and we live in such complicated times we're we're wearing clothes that are sourced from all over the world we're eating food that's sourced from all over the world to to have um 
to have lists of what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat is not as useful to us in the lives that we're living right now because food is not is not the only factor going to affect our 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 well-being there's all kinds of factors weather and food and news and media and relationships and stage of life and time of life and time of day and time of year and all of these things are are interacting such that in order to in order to put one foot in front of the other and and stay on the balance beam of reality these days it takes awareness and concentration and slowness when possible to to assess for ourselves is this the right thing to put in my body right now is this the right thing to put in my grocery cart today is you know is 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 this the right thing and and i fully agree that to to be curious about it's fine to be curious about what our prakriti is what our constitution is what our vikriti is what our current imbalance is but those things labeled with vata pitta or kapha i think are not as useful until you are until you're very conversant with the the language and experience of the gunas the 20 gunas the 20 qualities that ayurveda talks about heavy and light and cold and hot and oily and dry and all those opposites and we can do that without knowing any ayurveda we can just assess inside how how we feel we can we can you know if we feel heavy then when we look at a plate of heavy food meat or ice cream or cheese or eggs or something like that we might say hmm that's that's not the right that's not going to create balance here and and it's an internal awareness instead of an external dogma yeah i love that i love that and and i think that's a way more empowering approach too to to bring it back to the individual because I, I believe anyway that we do know if we, if we can slow down and listen, we, our body will elucidate what is necessary. Like we know what is right for us if we can cultivate the tools to pay attention and listen to the inner guidance. I agree. I so agree. Just, Claudia, I, I love when you talk about your guru and your relationship to your guru, and it sounds like you were quite young even when you met your guru. And I, I'm wondering if you have like a great lesson or something you've learned from your guru that you could share with us before we finish our conversation today. I would be so happy to. I love that question. And this is also something you've probably heard me say a million times, and it's, it's from the first interaction I had with my guru. When I was three, I kept thinking it was, I was four, but it was actually three when I met my guru's guru, and then he passed away, and then I was eight when I met my guru. And before I met him, so when I was seven or early in my eighth year, I wrote him a letter, and I don't remember what I wrote to him but I um, still have the letter he wrote to me and this was in 1977 Um, he wrote a a number of things that have been important in my life but one thing that he wrote which I think um, also has the potential to affect this master image of ourselves as we move through the world in, in an important way is keep good company good company makes a man great and that 
really that's that those two sentences keep good company good company makes a man great i think without my even being aware was a was a guiding force in how i ended up in ayurveda and um in the work that i do and it has it has made my life those those words have made my life and the question arises what is good company and i think i think that's a worthy question to meditate on i've meditated on that a lot um and i have my answers for that for myself but i think i think for each one of us that's that's a that's a good guiding question and that the answer might change in d- at different times mm-hmm. and do you feel that that is also relating to our relationship to ourselves like the company we keep within our own mind and internal space yes and i think i mean you know for example they they did a study with um at a wedding they had everybody hooked up to electrodes and stuff and were able to <laughs> it's an interesting wedding um they were able to somehow measure the 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 levels of oxytocin for people at different times during this wedding and what they found was people are the the woman with the person with the highest levels of oxytocin the cuddle hormone the the sense of connectedness hormone um the 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 participant with the highest levels of oxytocin was the bride. But anybody around the bride, even focusing on the bride, had higher levels of oxytocin. These higher levels of oxytocin help counteract the, the problematic aspects of too much cortisol and adrenaline racing through the system, the stress hormones. So it's a useful thing to have. And what was interesting about that study and others similar to it, including, including a study of of how social media affects our oxytocin. And, and this kid, young guy uh, in, his, in his teens, he was hooked up to electrodes and he was being monitored from afar. And at one point, his oxytocin levels raised something like 173% or something, something like that. And somebody said, oh, look at that. And, and the person who was leading the study said, oh yeah, he probably just got on his girlfriend's Facebook page and they're interacting. And that's exactly what happened. They went and looked. And so there's this ability to connect to company even from afar. And the people around the bride were keeping her company. They were, the company is who we're focused on, right? And when we're focused on something, a number of biological changes happen in our body depending on who that person is and what that experience is. So if we're keeping company that frightens us or increases our testosterone or increases our oxytocin or increases our stress hormones. All these things are going to have different biological effects on us. But also we become who we're focusing on in a way, because if I'm focused on you, if you and I are in the same room, they've, they've, they've found that, for example, if, if you imagine looking at, looking at me and I'm reaching up and I'm touching my nose with my right hand, and um, when I do that, when I reach up and touch my nose with my right hand, there's a, certain, there's a certain area in my brain that lights up that's related to my nose and my fingers and my arm that moved up there and so forth. And 100% of those neurons related to that are, are lighting up for me. You just focusing on, on me doing that and probably even just listening 
to this podcast and imagining yourself, don't, don't do it yourself, but imagine, imagining seeing me, seeing the speaker, somebody who looks like me, that your image of me or whatever, touching my nose with my right hand, just imagining that, or if we're in the same room, just seeing me do it lights up those same areas in your brain as if you were doing it. Fewer, maybe 20% or something, or 40%, I forget what it is, a fewer, fewer of those same um, neurons are firing, but still a certain percentage, say 20%, I think is roughly what it is. So 20% of you is experiencing what I'm doing. They, you know, they, they hypothesize that this has something to do with how we developed empathy, because when I see something happening to you or you doing something, then I'm experiencing that myself to, to some degree. So when I'm focused on you, which is the company I'm keeping, when I'm focused on you, I'm becoming you. I'm literally becoming you. My brain is doing what you're doing. And they've found that people who spend time together, that if, they, if they are mapping the brain, if they're doing brain visualizations of people, no matter who those two people are, if they, and they don't have to, if they spend a few minutes together and their brains start firing in a similar way. So we have these physiological changes, these biological changes, these chemical changes that happen just being in the same room with somebody. Yeah, it's ph phenomenal the scope of what that, you know, that entails. And it just brings me back to that original <clears throat> uh, concept of just we are all connected and we all are one on, on a certain level. And that what we do and how we do it matters, not just to ourselves, but to the people around us. And I'm sure those of our listeners with children see that uh, cause and effect uh, on a daily basis, but it's phenomenal. And then when we look at, you know, social media and what we're taking in back to the five senses, right? How we're drawing in things through our sight and through listening, how that's affecting us individually and globally. It's phenomenal. And I want to bring one thing in. I know we're probably running close to time, but there is something about this that I think um, would be good to mention because it can, that can be a scary thought, what we're just talking about, that, oh my God, I'm becoming everything that I'm seeing. And to a certain degree, that's, that's true. But we have discrimination on what aspect of what we're focusing on we're focusing on. For example, when when we go back to that hand study that, that, that we talked about earlier um, in our conversation, one of the things they found is if they, if they had people in a, a different study, actually, where they were, but with hands, um, and same idea, is when they were looking at how, how our perception changes, um, uh, changes pain levels and so forth, they had people put... Um, they put a, a heavy weight on the knuckles of both hands. So I'm sitting here with, with both my hands with these heavy weights on my knuckles and they're painful. And when they would have the take, they would have the person focus, do, do something like focus on the, on their left hand, not their right hand. And, um, focus on that with, I forget what they were doing, but focus on that in some way to reduce the pain. And what they found is the person could do that. If they did this little visualization, they could reduce the pain in their left hand. And what that tells us is we're not just 
we're not just um, we're not just in a trance state where we can't feel pain anymore. We have the ability to change our experience of pain in different parts of our body, to bring healing to different parts of our body. What does this mean in the, in the context of keeping company and focusing on social media and all of these things? Is I think that when, when we're in a group of people or we're watching a show or we're watching the news or, or Facebook, Whatever we have, we can choose to focus on an aspect of that, and that will sort of become us more than the other stuff. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. That for example, discrimination is important. Yeah. For example, you know, I was watching this show that that was kind of miserable, miserable characters <laughs> and so forth, but I, I got sucked in a bit and somebody said, well, what's sucking you in? And, and, I, and I said, you know, even though these characters are ruthless and, and they're not characters I want to emulate, they have this strength to their core where they don't care what other people think. And I appreciate that part. Mm-hmm. And so I, think we have, I think we have the ability to pick something out of, uh, of something and learn from it and and sort of accept that in a sense. Yeah. Oh, it's so fascinating. And I thank you for bringing that up and thank you for sharing um, this message from your guru of keeping good company. And I feel absolutely honored to have the company of you today and for you to be sharing your wisdom with our listeners. Uh, can you let everybody know how they can reach you and find you? And uh, if there's anything else you want to share about any of your programs or work that you're doing, um, please let us know. Um, it, thank you so much for having me. It is good company. I feel so blessed. Um, you, pr- the best place to go, um, the best place to go to to see what's going on, and and the we have online courses and and or and in person events uh, and um, all kinds of articles. I, I don't like to write stuff just to sell stuff. So. <laughs> So the articles that are on my website, all this stuff is on my website. And if you go to the website, please spend time with the articles. They're, they're interesting stuff like what we've been talking about. They're not geared to sell you something. They're just there because this stuff is interesting. And my website is uh, drclaudiawelch.com, www.drclaudia, Welch, like the grape juice, W-E-L-C-H.com. And there's all kinds of programs and books and courses that, that, that um, we offer. And one thing you might want to do is sign up for the newsletter, which is you can sign up for that on, on um, any page of the website. And I don't bombard with, um, with email. Just send you something if something needs to be said or if something is interesting. And can I just put a plug in for, um, this is a book that I recommend to so many of my women clients because I think it's a must have. Uh, Claudia's book, Balance Your Hormones, Balance Your Life is essential uh, for, for women, whether you're you know, going through menopause, perimenopause, or even just way before that to work preventatively, uh, it is a must have uh, tool in every woman's toolkit, I believe. And it's uh, life changing. So thank you for for writing that and sharing that, Claudia. Oh, it's my great joy. It took 10 years to write, and I'm really happy it's out there. Yeah, it's fantastic. 
And thank you all for listening to Be The Light podcast. I'm your host, Melanie Phillips, here with Dr. Claudia Welch today. Thank you so much and namaste. Thank you, everybody. Namaste.